This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday, time for our crack strategy panel. And we have a game of chicken on Parliament Hill. And at Queen's Park, more questions about the long-term care minister who apparently can't handle tough questions. The Conservatives are bent on keeping the We Charity scandal alive, and the Liberals are threatening to call a snap election over this. The opposition asked for documents relating to We, and they got a huge document dump with much of the information redacted. They now want to establish a so-called anti-corruption committee. The Liberals say that will trigger a confidence vote. Now, Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole hit back saying that the government's refusal to answer more questions should not be the cause of an election in a pandemic. So are either of them right or are they wasting our time when they should be doing more important things? And at Queen's Park, former Premier, former Premier Kathleen Wynne announced that she's not going to be running again. And uh, she added a parting shot uh, against the long-term care minister in that tweet. Uh, She basically said that uh, part of the gig is to answer tough questions. And of course, yesterday, Marilee Fullerton, the minister, abruptly left a news conference rather than take a question from a reporter who challenged her over a statement that the huge death toll from the pandemic was kind of equivalent to a bad flu year. Take a listen. I'm sorry, I think we'll have to go now. Okay, well, there you go. Apparently, Jessica does not deserve to be able to ask her a question. Now, uh, that remark that sparked the Twitter spat about the flu, like some people thought that would have been enough to end her tenure as minister. Uh, She is obviously incredibly thin-skinned, so can she last? What do you think? Is is she doing a good job in the long-term care sector? The number is to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I would like to bring in our strategy panel, John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, Charles Bird, Managing Principal of Earnscliff Strategy Group in Toronto, and Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village. Hi, everyone. Hi, Libby. Hello. Hello, Libby. Hey, Libby. Okay, let's start with uh, uh, Marilee Fullerton making those statements about the flu and the pandemic and walking out of a news conference. I I actually hadn't seen her take questions. It seems uh, that they've been having her on a short leash. Let's start with John. Well, I think in fairness to uh, to the minister, she has been out there, and she has been, I think, on, on from a daily perspective, out with the uh, with the premier. I know the premier when he does his 
daily press conferences. He, he often shakes up his, the ministers who are, um, who are with him, obviously, depending on the announcement of the day. If it's education, you'll have the minister, uh, uh, Lecce with him. If it's, uh, you know, right, financial. Right, but she was on her own this time. I yeah, haven't seen so, that. So, so I do. So I think from that perspective would be, I think that, you know, it's unfortunate that she did that. You know, I can't, you can't defend that. Uh, I think ministers are, uh, by virtue of their responsibilities, you know, have to take tough questions and and are quite frankly prepared and, and in some cases are are you know are taught how to take t- tough questions. So I don't I don't particularly li- like the fact that she did that. I think that with respect to the to the reporter, I know there was some history with the two of them that that uh, the reporter I think alleged sort of mis- misquoted her on some some occasion and hence the Twitter warfare. So I know there was some history and I think that the pressures might have gotten to the minister and she just didn't want to deal with. With the fact that this particular reporter had given her some some bad you know some bad press in the past, but nonetheless, saying that, having said that, I don't think that any minister should walk away uh, from tough questions. I think the premier has been doing a great job by taking all the tough questions, and so have other ministers. So I I don't I don't particularly like that she did that. I think that you know obviously there's pressures of the moment, uh, and the fact that there's a bit of a history between her and that reporter. I, I I you know I don't like to uh, go inside baseball about difficulties that that. I have uh, getting stories or interviews, but uh, I have to say in her case, she's notoriously thin skinned. And the last time I interviewed her was when the government announced that they would be topping up the pay for personal support workers. That was in May um, after that interview. But but she had no idea when the money would actually flow and uh, it wasn't going to be anytime soon. So um one of my colleagues put a tweet in saying, but, but the money's not going to flow anytime soon. So I can tell you that I had to field multiple calls from her, uh, assistant saying that that was somehow a misquote and, and changing the tweet. And I have never encountered any, well, almost never encountered anything like that. And the fact is that this top up announced in May, well, the, the PSWs got that money in October. So the tweet was perfectly accurate. I mean, you know, to me, I don't know if she can hack it, Charles. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it goes to John's comments that, you know, these folks are under tremendous pressure, especially someone who's responsible for long-term care in Ontario. But, yeah, I mean, it, and the, the, other, the other thing is this complete mess was entirely the making of her office, which is to say that this whole hullabaloo stemmed from an article that appeared in the Toronto Sun a couple of weeks ago by Brian Lilly, where he did the usual right-wing trope of saying, oh, you know, COVID's impact is right, right. really not as bad as the flu. And he, he, the exact quote was that um, not much worse than a bad flu season, you know, when it comes to deaths in long-term care facilities. And this was actually based on a document that Fullerton's office had provided to Lilly and presumably others. And the document in question went as far as to say that in January, February, March, and June, there were fewer deaths in LTCs when compared to 2018, a particularly bad flu year, end quote. And of course, they continually left April and May out of the equation, where there were over 5,000 deaths. And so um, it's it's really just, just a mess. And, um, you know, you talk about lies, damn lies, and statistics, and here's a good example of... Uh, the minister's office getting it dead wrong. 
Well, yeah. And, and, um, you know, they have done some things. They have not done a good job of communicating what they have done. And, uh, they're still, you know, the, the premier keeps saying how he's not going to leave any stone unturned. But, you know, here we are in the second wave. We have, uh, I, the number 80 some odd nursing homes in outbreaks and there's still a huge staffing shortage. I mean, what, more is it going to take, uh, you know, for this? How does this minister keep her job, Karen? Well, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. You know, like, you know, she could probably be forgiven for, uh, you know, acting in the moment if there was visible work being done to rehaul the long-term care sector, but th- but nobody sees it. And to your point, there's still outbreaks. Uh, families who have loved ones in long-term care can't see them. Um, it's been a horrible experience for families and people in long-term care, whether they contracted COVID or they're living in the fear of contracting COVID. So the entire sector is an absolute mess, candidly. And that's the issue, is that if this minister had been, you know, rolled up sleeves, dealing with the issues, making progress, pointing to success, she could be forgiven for a misstep. But, but the fact that there's so much undone and so much um, worry and vulnerability that still exists in the sector, and so many families are paying such a heavy price, that's where the, the lack of ability to, to pass this one off comes from, I believe. Uh, is there any possible factor that, you know, the, the, the Premier's been out there saying, again, leave no stone unturned, we're doing everything we can, that, that leaving her there is, is leaving somebody who can ultimately take the fall if if it turns out that uh, that it is as bad as many people say it is going to turn out. Charles? That's a decision that first ministers, premiers, prime ministers make with great reluctance. I mean, you, you never set a minister up to fail, but in some instances it becomes clear that the minister may not be up to his or her job. It can be performance in the legislature. It can be interaction with the media. And I think, you know, in the case of uh, Minister Fullerton, that, that's more of the problem here. But I'm reminded of good old Brian Mulroney, who was notorious when it came to uh, his views on reporters being unfair and getting it wrong. And uh, his, and uh, he, he was a legend in that regard and, and would have his press secretary call up reporters directly and challenge them. So in that in that instance, you know, Minister Fulton's in pretty good company, I suppose. I don't know. I remember covering Brian Mulroney. I never um, got some of those. Uh, oh, there's <laughs> a great story. Tough. I'll just quickly tell you a great story. And John will know the story of Pierre Graton, the late Pierre Graton, who was Mulroney's first uh director of communications. Yep. Oh, yeah. Or press secretary. Yes. And getting to a hotel at one in the morning in some godforsaken part of Canada and Mulroney producing a small transistor radio and listening to the news, then barking orders at Graton as to which reporters he had to call. Oh. So, <laughs> just amazing stuff, right? But, oh, he... I mean, thin skin sometimes goes with the territory and uh, it isn't necessarily a game, uh, a showstopper when it comes to political performance. Yeah. I, I mean, I've, I've, also, I mean, and we're going to talk about some of the uh, the rules, uh, the pandemic rules regarding ha- Halloween in our next segment. But it's also been put to me that uh, there are two female ministers from Ottawa, Lisa McLeod and Marilee Fulgen, and neither is is covering themselves with glory. Um, and uh, I mean. I just want to touch on this very briefly because, as I said, we're dealing with the whole Halloween thing in the next segment. But uh, so she cleared the way for 
dance studios to be open and she put that out in a tweet and then a lot of people are asking well if dance studios are okay why can't gyms be open it's just a uh, you know adding to the inconsistency so uh john would you say that both of these ministers are are you know maybe skating a bit no i, I would take issue with that libby i i think lisa mcleod has done uh, uh, you know, a, a great job. And again, look, we, we, this, this is a pandemic, right? We've never had this kind of a crisis uh, facing any government, you know, short of, of SARS of many, many years ago, which, which this, has, this has much more of a profound effect than, than SARS ever did. But so I think everyone is trying to deal with it. I'm not just saying the Ontario government, the federal government, governments across Canada, and international governments are all trying to deal with this pandemic and how, and how, you know, the unpredictability of it. So, you know, I think you have to be able to say and judge governments as we have based on what they've been able to do, how they're listening to health professionals. Uh, and I think this government uh, in particular, Premier Ford, has done a fairly decent job in trying to trying to navigate this this pandemic, this uncertainty, as has as have his ministers. Lisa McLeod might not have um, had the best showing in the first half of the uh, of the term uh, or the first year, but I think since she's moved into tourism, I think I think she's been out there. She's been certainly dealing with the tourism industry, which is one of the hardest hit industries uh, during this pandemic. And I think she's been out there giving them as much money and support as she possibly can, given the circumstances. Now, you know, you're going to have some failings, and there's going to be some di- some issues like Minister Fullerton, where you know she walked out as we talked about, and that's not necessarily a good thing. Uh, but I do think that people do look at it from a whole and see that this premier generally has been dealing with this pandemic as good as anybody else and any other premier has uh, in this in this uh, country. And I think that says a lot. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, let us move right along to the next topic on Parliament Hill. And Karen, what do you make of what's going on? The the opposition wants to keep talking about we. They want an anti-corruption yeah, committee, and apparently that's that's a confidence issue. Libby, to be honest with you, I think the Liberal government should just come out and call an election for heaven's sakes. Like they threatened us back during the budget or during the throne speech, rather. Now they're threatening. Like, what government in their right mind actually calls an election over anti-corruption? Like, every government should be committed to anti-corruption, right, like, on its face. Now, you can go in the backstory and say, well, this is about we, this is about setting up the liberals, this is about... But but on its face, it's absurd that any government would say, no, I don't want an anti-corruption committee. It just doesn't make any sense. And so if the liberals want an election, just call the election. Just call it. Just say, look, you know what, we're in a pandemic. We have a view of how we're going to get out of it. We have a vision for the future. Yes, we know it's not perfect to go to the polls, but it's worked for everybody else who got elected. So we're going to try our hand at it and just be honest about it. It's uh, it's interesting because the liberals say, well, if you think we're all so corrupt, that's a confidence issue. But even the conservatives have said, OK, we'll change the we'll name. Change the name. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, uh, Charles, what do you think? Well, John was saying a few, uh, just a, a few moments ago that um, you know, in that no one has really done a better job among the premiers than than Doug Ford. But you know who disagrees with John? Aaron O'Toole does. Because Aaron O'Toole was in Alberta this weekend uh, at the annual meeting of the Alberta Progressive Conservative Parties and sitting beside Jason Kenney, both of them without masks, of course. Um, O'Toole went as far as to say that Kenny had done a far better job than premiers in British Columbia and Ontario. And I think this just goes directly to Aaron O'Toole's judgment, and he's really going to be learning a hard lesson 
over uh, over this period because he is beat this as of this morning. He is backing down in a hurry as to the naming of these committees and constitution of these committees because he realizes that the Liberals are tired of you know Justin Trudeau's family being perceived as corrupt and on the take and liberal insiders getting rich. I mean, that's just not the case. This whole, like, there's no doubt We Charity was a mess, right? It was poorly handled under trying circumstances. We've talked about it week after week. But at the end of the day, there was no corruption. There was no corruption whatsoever. But what you have in Pierre Poilievre especially is a tendency towards the politics of humiliation. We're going to call this committee the anti-corruption committee. And that's the way it's going to be, and we've got the numbers to do it. And um, lo and behold, Aaron O'Toole foolishly played along. And now the Liberals are saying, well, enough of this. You know, if you're going to play these games, we will have an election. We don't want an election, but we're going to have one because we're tired of this. Hmm. John? With, with the deepest of respect to Charles, who says, you know, we, there was no corruption during we Well, we don't know because the Liberal government won't let us talk about it. <laughs> so there might have been corruption. And then, quite frankly, it would behoove them if there is no corruption, quite frankly, to let this thing go and let people have due process. Because at the end of the day, you know, and I said this last time, where there's smoke, there's fire. For the Liberal government to go through this amount of hoops and and pretzel-like moves to try to stop any, uh, you know, further discussions about we and what happened means that there's something there. Uh, and, and for them to, and, and Karen has said this so aptly, to, to say that, you know, really any government that would cause that you know that would would would, would call a confidence vote when when a, when the opposition in a minority government, by the way, wants to have a fuller, a more fulsome discussion about an issue that was significant. We're talking a lot of money that this government, taxpayers' money that this government was otherwise going to give an association or an, a charity that has since had some problems and has since gone bankrupt. So you know what? There are problems and there are issues. And for him, and for the prime minister to parole parliament. The day that these uh, the, the documents redacted, by the way, were released, uh, and to stop the committee from hearing, uh, I think, and, you know, under the pretense that there was going to be this bold new uh, throne speech that we're all going to be talking about this new direction of Canada, which was absolute bunk. There was nothing in that throne speech, and, and many reporters, uh, both both from the left and the right, have, have agreed to the fact that there was nothing in that throne speech that couldn't have been dealt with during the normal course of parliament. So, you know, there's something there. And then for the, you know, and for the opposition, I think it's important for them, quite frankly, Libby, to be able to push this because there are issues with respect to we, and there is something that has, uh, I think, put a, put a, a, a chink in the armor of this government. Um, and I think it's important for them to be able to get through it and, and at least get some uh, information that they've requested even before the House prorogued. Um, there, because, of course, with the prorogation of the House, everything was shut down, and now they're just trying to get it back up. And by the way, they're changing the name because the NDP suggested that a, ch- a name, a name of the ch- a change of the committee name might actually help them support it, and that's important for this, uh, for this, um, for this to go through. Okay, uh, let's take a call from Rose in Mississauga. Hi, Rose, how are you? Hi, I'm great. How about you? Fine, thanks. I love your show. Thank you. Um, yes, I'm, uh, I would like to make a couple of comments in regards to the, uh, to, to the pandemic. The uh, Ford government and uh, Justin Trudeau, they are doing a magnificent, magnificent job. They, they, they are being just totally stressed out. You can imagine yourself working 24 hours a day together with the cabinet ministers. I am, uh, I was a conservative, but now I am leaning more towards the liberals. And why is that? 
That is because I am uh, I am a senior. They are tr- trying to do their best job. And how can you? Uh, how can the conservatives just go on with the we charity a scandal with uh, with uh, any other uh, 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 trying to make too much noise in regards to uh, to uh, all those investigations? I agree that it was not the right thing with the we charity. But on the other hand, let let the government do their job that they are doing during a pandemic. This pandemic is is horrific. Uh, there are no jobs for anybody. They are trying to do their best. Okay, Rose. I think I know where you're coming from. Thanks for your call. Thank you so very much. Okay, Karen. So uh, I guess uh, maybe the Liberals won an election because they figure a lot of people are, are thinking like Rose does. Yeah, I think so. And also, when you look around what's happening uh, with the elections, the provincial elections that have been held, the incumbent is returned to office. And uh, New Zealand, um, you know, that the party won uh, a landslide victory. And so when you're looking, you know, when if, if, if Justin Trudeau is looking at other elections and looking at the results, it's very advantageous for the Liberals to have an election. But I mean, I think he should just come out and say, I want an election. And then be honest about it and not, not, you know, say, oh, the conservatives are being mean to us because that's just and try to blame it on them for orchestrating something that's entirely within his prerogative to hold. And mm-hmm. I think the conservatives and the NDP are well within their rights to hold this liberal government to account because it is a minority government and they can't forget it's a minority government and they have to work across party lines. Or they don't. If they don't want to do that, then they call an election. And Charles, do you uh, agree with that? I mean, uh, the opposition is definitely, I would say, not ready for an election. But Canadian electorates uh, punish people who take them for, to the polls for no good reason. Do you do you agree with Karen's view? Well, I mean, I, I don't think the Liberals want an election. Um, I do think that it is the job of the opposition to hold the government to account. But if the aim of the opposition is just consistently embarrassment and and trying to fix tags like corruption on government, then it, it's lost its way. It, it's, it's doing something that is fundamentally rooted in debasing the political protest process. And, you know, this is this goes to the longstanding conservative obsession with Justin Trudeau. And, you know, he was the great killer of Stephen Harper, and he'll never be forgiven for that. So everything he does is is terrible and corrupt and this and that. And the reality is we are in the midst of a pandemic and we've got to be focused like a laser beam on getting Canadians through this. And um, I, I really wonder about Aaron O'Toole because, I mean, when he was in Alberta this past weekend talking about how Jason Kenney's done such a better job than Doug Ford, he, he was doing so because he, because he felt Alberta hadn't been nearly as stringent in terms of the restrictions. But the reality is Alberta's infection rate on a per capita basis is 50% higher than that in Ontario. So this is a deliberate choice on the part of Aaron O'Toole, who's putting economic considerations ahead of human lives. Mm-hmm. John, do you agree with that? No, I, I don't. <laughs> um, I, I think that it's pure just, you know, uh, you know a, a, a federal leader going into a province at, at, their, uh, at the provincial AGM of, of the Conservative Party, Jason Kenney's, Premier Kenney's party, and he's basically just complimenting the Premier on, on what he's been able to do. And I think that every political leader does that, and, and it's out of respect and in accordance with, you know, just, you know, maintaining uh, good relations with, with your provincial counterparts. So I'm not, I'm not fussed by that, and I don't think Premier Ford's fussed by that. But I, what Maybe I they're annoyed with, uh, by Premier Ford's bromance with the Liberals? Yeah, and Could Premier be. Ford Could said be. he wasn't going to help the Conservatives. 
maybe had something to do with it as yeah. well. And yeah, you, you know what? And I think I think there's support of uh, you know, yeah. Yeah. Too. So, yeah, yeah, it's, it's tit for tat. It's kind of sad. Yeah, well, well, it's, well it's that never politics. happens in politics, right? <laughs> yeah. Nonetheless, I listen. I, I think I think that what I do agree with with Charles on is is that oppositions, no matter who it is, you know, always have that balance of of you know maintaining and being the opposition. Uh, while still trying to come up with ideas and, and, and things. And I think that there's always that balance of, you know, you're going too far and in, in you're opposing the government, and especially in the pandemic. And I think that our party has shown that even at the height of the pandemic, that we're being a supportive of who we possibly can. But then again, you know, it's up to the prime minister not to take advantage of that goodwill. And I think there are certain cases, and, and there's been very much a lot of cases where he has taken advantage of that goodwill. So I think it's a two-way street, but I do think there's a balance. I think Aaron O'Toole has to skate that line of, of being in opposition, but yet still being supportive of the government where he needs to be. Okay, we are. Uh, we just have a very little bit of time left, so uh, let's have a, a, a sort of maybe a comment each on the U.S. election. Charles, go uh, ahead. Well, the big debate's Thursday night. Um, I contend that it's much closer than most people realize. It'll come down to a number of key swing states. It's astonishing to me that given Donald Trump's appalling behavior over recent months, weeks, months, years, that he stands a chance for re-election, and yet he does. And uh, so we'll have to see what happens on November 3rd. Mm, okay. Uh, John, and it's interesting. I heard an interesting analysis, I think it was last night, that on Trump's side, there are a lot of um, uh, white men who've never voted before at those rallies. Well, you know, when you look at those rallies, they're, they're, they're incredible. And, and I think he's always been known from the day he became, or in fact, when he was campaigning for president, the, the day he became pre- president until now, that the, the crowds are still in unbelievable. There's hours lineups. But nonetheless, I think, though, Libby, that, you know, I think it is close. I think that there's still is too close to call. Um, I think this debate is going to be an interesting one because I think there's going to be new rules. I think the president there's a mute himself button. is going to change. <laughs> it's going to, yeah, the mute button. I think the president himself is going to probably change his tone uh, from the criticism he got from his own people from last time. So I think it'll be interesting. I think two things. I think Amy Coney Barrett is going to be a, a Supreme Court justice before the end of this month. I think that the election is going to be close. I think people will be watching this debate because of all the news leading up to it. Um, and I think it is too close to call at this stage. Hmm. Karen? Yeah, it is an interesting dynamic because um, in spite of all of uh, you know Trump's efforts to, to be, be his, worst, his own worst enemy, I, I still think within the American public he is associated with a strong economy. And as the economy is, seems to be recovering and the stock market seems to be rallying, um, all of those gains are associated positively with Trump. And what's remarkable, though, is when you actually look at the history of the stock market, the stock market gains are um, actually better under Democratic presidents. Yep. So it's, it's actually a very strange dynamic. But, you know, as I say, you know, a month ago I was, Trump's winning, I'm not even paying attention to the election. Then he got COVID and then I wasn't sure. And now, again, it's, it's up for grabs. So I'm not calling it because it is, I, <laughs> I, I like the other two. I think it's too close to call. <laughs> I, I, I agree, too. My, my husband is, is pressuring me to put money down yeah. because I have a very good track record on predictions. But I am not ready. <laughs> I'm not ready either. Okay, well, we're all... Our next show, our next show, then, Libby, we have to all put money on it. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All righty then. Thank you so much to our strategy panel, Charles Bird, Karen Stintz, and John Capobianco. We'll talk again soon. Thanks, Libby. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks, Libby. Libby.
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.